1: Um, we we want to have a sort of a discussion, but if anybody's got a question or something what they want to raise at this point go right ahead um, If you don't I'll do it um, The thing I wanted to talk about was there's a historical aspect to both of these and I it was I heard this first from uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, but I'm quite sure he swiped it from somebody else just the the idea that one of the links between science fiction and historical novels is that you actually, one difference between them and mainstream or what some people call around the house and out in the yard literature is you have to actually create the world. You have to create the manners, you have to create the, you have to art direct, you have to create a world. And uh, so I wanted to ask uh, both of these um, writers, of course, in many ways, you were doing a riff off of of Jane Austen, mm-hmm. so you're working in a world actually that was already created yeah, but it's a still sense. a
2: foreign country for my readers um yeah but that, that's irrelevant actually they're reading her book they've got to read that she's got to make it in a way that they could exactly
0: understand. yeah, right. and that's uh, for me it's um Writing historical is significantly harder than when I'm just doing epic fantasy or science fiction because no one will call me on it if I get it wrong.
1: All right. Well, Sp- <laughs> you deal with Jane Austen, you're in big trouble. Oh, if, yeah. Uh, oh, that, yeah. yeah. That's true.
2: Oh. <laughs> they let me know.
1: <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever get called?
2: Oh, yeah, all the time. Like how? Um, um, well, people will – I'm trying to think of one. Yeah, I can, um, I can uh, do Well, one. I had a dog sweat in one book, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and I th- it was early in the book. And when I'm starting out the book, I s- I, I, I'm you know I'm forcing it, and you do stupid things, <laughs> and I've, I could kick myself. But it, once the book <laughs> got into into uh, on a roll, you know you sort of things blend in better. But um, well, having a dog
1: sweat is not particularly that's. You don't, don't do that anywhere. No,
2: but the the um, the biggest problem I have right now is that the people who write copy screw it up. Mm. Like, uh, the person who wrote the copy on Eleanor says that Louis was older than she was, and he wasn't, you know? And um, the per- person who wrote the copy, the jacket copy on this book, is just an idiot. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I don't know where they are, but uh, they better not come near me because the, the jacket copy has almost, I mean, it's, it's sort of in the same general area as the book, but it isn't what the book's about. And, it, and in fact, it's downright lies, you know? And they also say somewhere that I, I, I stopped writing for a while to raise my children, which is absolute crap. <laughs> I wouldn't have raised them if I didn't, wasn't working, you know? So, I mean, they just live, they live in some, some fantasy world where writers have quill pens. And, you know, we come down in the morning and the maid brings breakfast. <laughs> uh, so it's uh, but that isn't what you meant, but No, you changed <laughs> it. You If changed. I can't answer what you meant, I'll answer my own question. I'm right. the Red Queen here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but I mean you, you do you write about uh um different historical period and you write a lot about the Normans and the the Templars yeah. and oh, yeah. all this well, kind of stuff. Yeah. So do you get and I know you do a lot of research, but do do people um uh uh, do you miss stuff that people che- not about dog sweating, which is no, uh, no. Uh,
2: somebody somebody told me there weren't sycamores in in England in the time of Stonehenge, wow. and like that, you know. Oh, um, well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. it is because I really tried very hard to find out what was there, and it's just, but it was like thousands of years ago and all that. And um, if you get the name of a piece of armor wrong, somebody will nail you. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but mostly, you know that. Uh, I don't, in, in order for me to notice something, you have to fall over it. And so I'm not putting in a lot of extra stuff. And uh, when, I, when I'm using something, I go and check it out. I'm very, I know how bad I am at this.
1: So where do so, you check it out?
2: Well, um, it depends. If, if there are books, like I, when I did the book, The, the High City, which has a, a fair amount of stuff about ships in it, um, I, I ran into this incredibly good book about um, about uh, dromons, which was written by some Australian crackpot who just was nuts about dromons. And it's like this. What thick. are dromons? They're ships. And uh, um, when I was doing the medieval, the, the new book has a lot of medieval medicine in it. None of these, the new book is the book I just finished to me. And um, I I'd had to do a lot of, of, I found a book about, by an archaeologist, about uh, crusader wounds. And it was just a gold mine, absolute gold mine. He had, the guy describes operations, he described techniques, he had all sorts of stuff about how they treated wounds. And, and it, just, it was just wonderful. And uh, you find a source like that, and, and you just use it like, man. That's another thing, is that quite often, I, rather than doing things and having to look up and see what happens, I do what I know. Mm-hmm. You know, if I find a book like that, I use it like mercilessly. And yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: How much of that research do you do proactively, like do you set out to write a book about the Normans or about the, the, you know, set in Jane Austen's period and then go and research that period and research specific things and then write the book
2: or or does the book? Well, you kind of do it simultaneously. You know, you do one thing, and that leads to something you write, and then you—that something you write leads to something you have to go look up, and then you look it up, and then that finds something interesting. So you throw out what you already written and write something else. And yep, <laughs> there's a, it's a—it's a very give and take kind of thing. Um, uh, you find books um, in the course of of your writing of the researches. I say that that just are full of stuff you can use, and. Um, at the same time, I use a lot of stuff that isn't in books i uh, I do a lot of horse stuff and things about animals and things about landscapes that I can go do. you know I can go look, I can go find a goat and see what a goat looks like. I can you know check out a horse. I can find um, a crossbow, I can uh, get a loom, I can try weaving, I can try uh, you know spinning wool. I can do all this kind of stuff and if I can do that myself. You know, I would rather do that myself. I get You get more out of it that way.
0: Yeah, anytime you can do primary source stuff, yeah. it's always always better. Although, you know, there's also lots of stuff that I feel really no need to research. I, you know, I, I don't actually need to fire a dueling pistol.
2: Yeah, I never crawled <laughs> into a barrel. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, that's, have you ever crawled out of a barrel? It's the question. Uh,
2: no, you know, uh, no and I, I, um, uh, um. I have. I'm. I'm very Poe-like. I'm terrified of close places. Hmm. So, we
1: had a question.
3: Um, I was thinking sort of about the previous question and your answer leads me to ask the following on that. um, In your just addressing specifically Cecilia's uh, novels, in your early novels, you were kind of bouncing around from period to period. City, which you're revisiting Constantinople from Golden Gold in a period uh, just after Belton Gold.
2: Yeah, right? yeah.
3: And so, in some sense, and you've got this uh, uh, Viking Varangian thing going.
2: Uh, yeah. So, in some
3: sense,
2: uh, are you. Well, you I really, I really love the Dark Ages. Asia I life? love the Dark Ages. Yes. And I love Vikings. And I really think they've gotten the dirty end of the stick because everybody just thinks of them as guys who go around hacking and hewing. When they actually had this enormous culture that was, it wasn't, you know, a high culture, but it was a, a very uh, uh, active and, and uh, vigorous culture that stretched all the way from Iceland to the, to Russia, and um, and a very practical and. And there's a tremendous amount of data because of all the SAGAs and the, and uh, Kriegler and, and Saxo Grammaticus and these guys. And um, so it's just, it, I love that. But the reason I went to Constantinople again was Charles Brown, who said, after he read Varanger said, I was going to have him go back to, to the north, see. He said, no, you've got to go to Constantinople. So I said, okay, and I was going to Europe the next year, and I could go to Istanbul. And when I went to Istanbul, uh, I fell in love. I just um, fell in love. I had a, There was a great book uh, by Pierre Gilles called uh, Antiquities of Constantinople. It was written in the 16th century when st- that stuff was still there because of course the Turks take it in 1453. And uh, I took this book and I went around in the old city and looked and found all the places. And it was just, I fell in love. I love the Turks anyway. But I just really loved Constantinople. I would do another book there if I could volcano think of a story. What do you think? <laughs> the what?
1: The volcano kept me from going to
3: Constantinople, Istanbul
2: this year, and I'm going next year. Oh, oh too so bad. Yeah. 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 But, no, it's a great city. It's an absolutely great city.
1: Now, let me ask you this, because this first novel is uh, – um, I mean – Cecilia has built a whole career out of uh, historicals. Mm -hmm. Your first is sort of a historical. Mm -hmm. Is that the direction you're going in or just something Um, you did?
0: It's – I guess it's just something I did. Um, (laughs) um, I I say that knowing full well that the one I'm working on right now is also a historical. (laughs) But when I finished the second one, the sequel, uh, Glamour and Glass, which is um, set in the Napoleonic Wars – I said to my agent, "Never let me write another historical ever again, <laughs> because there's so much freaking research." And 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 of course, now I'm working on something in 1907.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, just a question. So, how come you named the dude Dunkirk? Does that mean he has a big disaster? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it means he's got a tan knife. A what? No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, actually all of the characters, um, either their first or last name comes from someone I know. Dunkirk uh is I use behindthename dot com and, and grabbed that as a British surname, but uh Edmund is his first mm. name. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he's named after Edmund Schubert, who is the editor at IGMS and we were at uh we we were old friends, so
1: all right. you had a question. I did
3: actually. Um, wow. For Mary, it was, given what we were just talking about in terms of there being so much research with a historical novel, I mean, I suppose if you write fantasy or write science fiction, you're used to creating systems, mm-hmm. like whole systems. Uh, you know, just listening to this excerpt of the book, I was struck by how clearly articulated the system of glamour seemed to be. And I wondered what that process What it was
0: like to create that. Okay. So there's the glamour that's on the page, and then there's the glamour behind the page. Um, The glamour on the page uh, is all I'm using. um, I decided that it was a women's art, and and I decided to mostly use textile terms um, to define it. Partly because parts of it behave like textile and partly because I thought, well, these are things that women handle all the time. And I, I didn't want to use cooking metaphors. Um, so so there was going through and deciding what the language was. The other aspect of it um, is that I had to figure out how it actually worked. And because I didn't want to break history, there was a lot of reining the magic in and, and allowing it to do less. Most of the book... Most of the creating of this magic system was about keeping the magic from doing too much. the The example that I keep using is the uh, sunlight. There's a scene where she creates a beam of sunlight, uh, careens across a bookshelf. And um, the thing about the way the glamour works is it's an illusionary form of magic. It looks like there's sunlight, but if you stuck a book into it, you would not actually be able to read it any more clearly. Than you would, just in in the room. It, it's like a, a picture of the sun is not as bright as the sun, even though within the context of the picture it looks bright. Because if I didn't do that, if I didn't make it an illusionary form of magic, then um, candles would never have been invented, and that completely breaks history.
1: Right, we get military like these. Whose woman does the big dragon ships like uh, Naomi Novik?
0: Right. right. Yeah. 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 Um, and and. And the other thing that I did along those lines was that I said, and this comes oh, up no, slightly, it's slightly the mentioned the in the first chapter that you have to tie, the gl- when you finish, you have to tie it. If you don't tie the glamor off, it dissipates. And the reason I wanted to do that was so that you couldn't, um, you couldn't industrialize it. Because as soon as, as soon as you make it something that you can make and then transport someplace, um, then you it becomes much easier for it to have military applications. It does actually have military applications, but we just don 't go to war in this book that's in the second book <laughs> 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 um, so that's that's the magic that's that's glamour on the page behind the page. if you don't mind me rambling for a little bit longer no behind the page um, is the the what I call the or what people call the deep story, which is the point where this alternate history diverged from our world. And for me, it's that in this world, fairy never separated from the mortal world. So they just interbred. So everybody has the second sight. And just like regular vision or um, ability with music or painting, everybody has it to differing degrees. Some people are very good at it. Some people aren't. Jane happens to be extraordinarily good at it. Um, Melody is nearsighted. <laughs> um, what the second side allows them to do is manipulate the electromagnetic spectrum. So they are grabbing the light, bending it, and twisting it. Um, the closer you are to the middle of the spectrum, the easier it is to work. The farther you get to the ends, the harder it is to work. You'll s- hear references when we get farther into the book to uh, cold mongers, and cold mongers are people who can manipulate cold. And what they're actually doing is, a, you know, some thermodynamic transfer. There aren't heat mongers. The reason there aren't heat mongers is because what you're doing to do that is manipulating microwaves, and it tends to kill you. <laughs> um, and it also takes the farther you are to the ends, it takes significantly more energy to do. So when you get out to the ends, it's just easier to light a piece of wood on fire. You know, so so no one really does the heat mongering because it, <laughs> dead and. <laughs> and and hard Um, and of course this whole system sounds great until you realize that I also let them manipulate scent but (laughs) you know it's magic I'm allowed to do that Um, but all of that is stuff that isn't on the page but I had to figure out how it would work so that when Mr. Vincent starts inventing things which he does throughout the books I knew how it worked and that there was a logical progression um, so there's a lot of research that's not research except in my head.
1: Yeah, makes sense. Yeah? cool.
2: Yeah.
1: So you dealt with magic in the um Loose Strife series.
2: Yeah, I'm not <laughs> nuts about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> um what it, what I what I did was just sort of I I used it to move plot stuff along. The, there's mo- a lot of of um magic in this because um the the main guy um Periodically drifts off across the astral plane, mm. and um, yes. Ethel Red the Unready has managed to marry an alien, but. Um, <laughs>
1: no, come on,
2: really? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I missed that. <laughs> no, she, you know what? You know what a Boltzmann brain is? This is a great idea I ran into somewhere. Boltzmann was a, a, a uh, Austrian scientist around the uh, beginning of the last century. And he had this very facetious theory. You know how scientists get these little facetious <laughs> deals—that the universe is very complicated, and it's easier for reality to make than to make a whole universe. To make, like an individual brain. And his theory was that the brain would have false memories. But my idea is that there's this this areas out here is just full of these loose brains ricocheting around, and, <laughs> and, and and one of them has has come to Earth around you know 1,000. And one up in England, and um, that's what that that strange person is.
1: Ah. Oh. Okay. So, But
2: I never said this.
1: I skipped over a lot of that. Yeah, the whole,
2: <laughs> the whole point, as, as Mary says, you need to have it straight in your mind what's happening so that you can do it. But, you know, you don't need to tell everybody why. You just need to have mm-hmm. some kind of form that you can use so that you, you don't get totally weirded out yourself. You know? Well,
1: you know, I did one fantasy, and my editor was uh, Hartwell, uh-huh. and Hartwell – he said, you know, and basically I gave him the the book and he gave it back and told me all the stuff that he had to do. It. And he says, the thing with magic is it's machinery and you have to get the machinery right.
2: Right. Yeah. And you
1: can kind of fudge it, it with a car or a tank or an airplane or something. But with magic, you have to actually understand the machinery right. or at least pretend you understand. Mm-hmm. It. Yeah. And then on top sure. of
2: it, you know, it isn't real. Yeah. You know, therefore, you know, there's something terrifically arbitrary about it, which is very... Um, to a, a writer, at least to my kind of writer or to me um is cheating mm-hmm. so um i don 't think i 'll do it again i um I have a um, kind of um, fantasy science fiction thing i 'm working on now, but it isn 't really uh, it doesn 't have a lot of magic in it it 's just well maybe it is but i mean it 's i don 't not historically i i won 't do it again
1: now, how come you never did You You do nothing with the Greeks.
3: <laughs>
1: you do the Normans. Yeah, yeah. You you run through the Mediterranean with the Greeks. Why, why are the Greeks left out of the whole thing?
2: I don't know. I leave a lot of people out. I've never done anything about, um, um, well, who have I never done? i never done anything about the Indians. You know, I've never done anything about the Japanese. I mean, why do not you complain about that? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I don't know. The Greeks do not, uh, I wouldn't say they don't interest me, but they're, they're, I, I'm more interested in um, in oddball things anyway. The Greeks are right smack in the middle of everything. Everybody knows everything. Everybody's you got you a theory. You
1: seem to to like the Normans a lot.
2: I love Normans. Yeah. I think the Normans are really geniuses. They were I mean thugs. They, well, okay, they're thugs, but they they come into um, uh, the um, uh, northern Europe at a time when it's just chaotic. Horse Vikings, chaotic. Right? yeah, they were horse Vikings, and they start making states. And they make states. Oh. They make a state in Normandy. They make one in England. They make one in Sicily. They make states that work at a time when everybody else, they, they, they're Even lucky if the they East. can collect te- taxes. They made one after the Battle of Manzikert. A Norman who was a mercenary for whatever the emperor was then, was separated from everybody else, grabbed a bunch of people, and tried to form a Norman state in Anatolia. I mean, you know, they, their instinct was to, to make, make states. And uh, there's a, something very... Uh, um nice about this i mean the rest of er everybody else is busy you know burning each other and and uh, um, (laughs) praying a lot and the normans are doing something practical and also you know the the sicily is a wonderful wonderful piece of history that nobody knows Uh, the norman kingdom of sicily is just fabulous
1: that's the great maria
2: yeah, a lot of that. Maria is a lot. Of, there's a lot of yeah. that. Maria is in a new edition. Anybody who's interested in that, <laughs> it's a beautiful cover. And a new edition. You can all run out and buy that one too. Well, <laughs> one of
1: the one of the things that drew me to your the thing I remember first uh, being impressed in your books was that. Um, was, was the horses. Mm-hmm. There was always, it was like the first rider I had come across, modern rider I had come across, who understood how horses actually worked and wow. all that kind of stuff. Was that, did you make that up or did you have no, a background? I, mean, I, I, I was or? like
2: 19 years old. I didn't know anything. <laughs> Only thing I knew was I, I knew my horses. So, you know, whatever I needed a piece of business, I'd have a guy go pick a hoof up. <laughs> you know, and, and horses are, are I, I, I've always ridden. I rode all the time, and I had horses, and, you know, that's good, good business. You know, and they did. Their horse, the horse makes civilization. The horse is the backbone of civilization for 2,000 years, 3,000 years, and now look what's happened to the poor things. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, too bad. But, I, no, I love horses, and yes. I know them, so.
1: Question for Mary. Um, what
3: drew you to pulling magic into Jane
1: Austen's world? Ladder, please.
3: Sorry, what drew you to pulling magic into Jane Austen's world?
0: What drew me to pulling magic into Jane Austen's world? Yes. Um, I was reading Persuasion and loving it. Um, it's my favorite, and I was wondering why there weren't intimate stories like that in fantasy and uh and there are one or two but they're they're not as frequent not as common um and so i i wanted to uh i mean basically i wrote a book that i wanted to read yes you know it's like i want to see jane austen with magic mm-hmm. so i'll write it <laughs> right
1: so um, what's different, what's in Persuasion? That's also my favorite. Yeah. So what's different about Persuasion? It's a, bu- it's a book about loss, right?
0: It is, and for me, I mean, there, there's some of the, uh, the comedy of manners in, in Persuasion, but it is much more about, for me, it's much more about the relationship and the, the refinding of each other. Um, some of the others are more about the business, and they, they clip along faster. Certainly. Um,
1: so, do you like the movie? There's a pretty good movie about Persuasion.
0: You know, um, uh, if it's the one I'm thinking of, I loved it up until the end. And the.
1: With the circus coming to Yeah, and uh, I'm just yeah. like. Galloway. WTF.
0: WTF. <laughs> <laughs> um, because the end is so perfect as written, and no need to change it. I'm like, why, why
1: do we have to do this? Right. Um, <laughs> no, that, that makes yeah. sense. All right, anybody else? Please. Yes,
3: this is for Cecilia. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I speak
1: well. Holler at Cecilia. Okay,
3: I'll do my best. <laughs> um, I've always, one thing I've always really liked about your books is their sort of integrity, the way um, I can't hear her. the characters really feel to me as if they live.
2: Tell me this again. Okay, one <laughs> thing I've really
3: always liked about your books is there's an integrity to them. There's a sense that you really feel the chari- that when you read about the characters, you feel that you're reading about people living in their time. And right. There's no intrusion of like, you know, present mm. thinking and stuff. And I was wondering how you do that. I mean, is there, does it just come naturally? Is there an editing process?
2: No, it's just, the, it, it just happens, though. Come back to the microphone.
1: Come back. Talk on the mic. Live, Live
2: in your time.
3: <laughs>
2: Thank you very much. That's quite a compliment, and I just do it. <laughs> um, I, think I, uh, I think basically I am kind of a misfit in this time, maybe. And what it is isn't that I'm, I would fit anywhere better anywhere else. But um, I'm just much more comfortable in... Uh, in the imagined world, I live in my books
1: but it is true they they don't uh, there's not an overlay of of modern sensibility i that 's what I hear you saying yeah. that uh, that um, well i I raven I love her work but it 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 you do feel like you're there but I have a question i I was overhearing your interview with Rick and you were talking about a, a, the Middle Ages. You loved it because there was no technology, which I thought was bullshit. <laughs> it's a, I was no, say. because there's a very there's a lot of technology, and you That's use very the technology. True. That's very true. Horses it, are technology. This was
2: you know? kind of a that was a kind of a shortcut. Right. There isn't the modern um, uh, kind of technology, which is so overwhelming. When they d- of course they had. You know, I mean most of the tools we use in gardens now were invented in the stone age. I mean, uh, right. there's always technology, there's always something, um the the horseshoe, the 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 bit, the you know, the horse collar, all these things are enormous. The mill, important.
1: the fireplace, the know all this.
2: The horse, stuff. yeah, the horse and, and Eleanor's father built uh, that tower. Um, he was the first person to try to build hearths. Before then, they'd had when they wanted to heat a room, they brought in like little tubs and put them full of coals and everything. Now this must have been a real interesting and experience. And hope the smoke would go out. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> whole, but he had hearths set in the wall with chimneys, and uh, this was quite an innovation at the time. And but the the Maubergien burned down several times too, and I bet you it was because of that. Mm-hmm. Of, there, there's a lot of technology, but it's it's uh, in keeping with their ideas about what reality was. Maybe that's what this, the real answer is: is that every culture, every time, has its own sense of what's real, of what reality is. And the Middle Ages reality was was pretty different from ours. I mean, they were um, Neoplatonists. Um, they didn't believe the world was real. They believed that the ideas behind it were real, and um, they uh, believed that they were you know, kind of in the antechamber, that what they did here determined how they did in the real, you know, getting to heaven and all that kind of stuff. And um, so they had a radically different idea about what, um, about values and about relationships and about everything. And that's fun. That's the whole point.
1: But you also said, uh, and uh, that they didn't have this uh, media image of the world that sort of shaped how they yeah, felt
2: we we everything we do is mediated in some way or another by media. That's but everything media they med-
1: did was mediated by the church. So uh, the well, church yeah, to the- me was the, the great... <laughs> the great show that everything fit into?
2: Well, the church tried to be the great show. But one of the things, that, I mean, they and they would love you to believe that. But the fact is that all through the Middle Ages, along with the church, there are other factors going on. The whole idea of chivalry and of uh, that kind of culture is an, uh, a rival mindset to the Christian mindset. The whole... It, 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 whether it comes from the Vikings or whether it just comes from their own warrior past, they developed this whole other idea about um, about life and about values and things, which was uh, in a, in a conflict with the church. The church was constantly trying to put this thing down, mm. but it would come roaring back. And then uh, you get the tournaments instead of wars, but they aren't instead of wars; they're just preparations for the wars. And uh, they try to uh, they get the church the truce of God, and then you know, they throw them all over to the Crusades and all this kind of stuff. But there's a constant struggle between what the church thinks is going on and wants everybody to believe is what's going on and what people, other people, had in mind. Yes? What are resources you have for was going on outside the church? No. Um, I'm not really sure. Just it's, 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 you know, the more you read this stuff, the more you sense this stuff going on. And um, I mean, you read about chivalry. There is nothing in the church that has anything to do with chivalry. Chivalry is obviously a warrior cult, and uh, and you can see it 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 reaches back to past when you know past Clovis is what we're talking about here, and um, oh. into um, so you can go look at things like like even Tacitus and find what he says about it, and you can see all of a sudden that it's it's still there, that it's still all there, you know, that the church is clamped down on top of it and is trying as hard as they can to civilize these people, but they're roaring back. The other thing to do, of course, is just pay attention to what the church is complaining about. Right, yeah, whatever they're complaining about is what's going on they don't (laughs) like. Right, like... That works now. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah. You don't make a law against something unless it's happening. Yeah and um, so... Um, well, it's like, it's like in, in, um,
1: in Eleanor. There, there's this whole idea of who you're attached to, and uh, you know, the, it seems to me like the Middle Ages were about attachments and hierarchy. Yeah, oh and yeah. And you're saying yeah. that's, that was sort of a counterforce to the, to the Holy Roman Empire, the the
2: No, no, the church, uh, no, the, the church uh, well, the, the whole society was based on obligations Obligations and duties, fealty, and uh, what you what you had to do, what you were supposed to do, when you were supposed to do it, how, and what form you were supposed to. And do And everybody it. accepted that
1: it was normal, right?
2: Well, it was. Yeah, it, it was. Prob- it varied very widely from one place to another, and uh, but it was still the basic idea was that a person who did not fit into this was really weird and scary, right? And uh, that. You know, and, you can understand that, and
1: basically a loan for the wolves to feed on, like right. Edward, yeah, like the wolf
2: said that any man might cut down. Yeah, uh, the the whole. Um, so when you have like Eleanor of Aquitaine, who decides that you know basically, and who you can see that by the way she lived her life, that she wasn't gonna she wasn't gonna stand for any of this bullshit. She was gonna live the life she wanted, and she was as good as any man. She ruled as well as any man, and she went on crusade. And, you know, uh, she basically had as big a life bigger because she was a woman and had that huge emotional range uh, as any man. And uh, they couldn't stop her because they were constrained by the system she had escaped.
1: But she wasn't like Elizabeth where you could say, I'm not going to hook up with a man. I'm going to be the queen myself. That was earlier, right? No, mean- yeah,
2: Elizabeth is a different, different situation. I mean, I mean, obviously, Eleanor just loved to screw <laughs> yeah, well she yeah,
3: yeah.
2: Uh, well, uh, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But maybe she did. She had red hair too. <laughs> Uh, I love Elizabeth, and I would love to do her, but everybody's done her, so, you know. Elizabeth I mean, has
1: been. Well, so has Elner, but you you manned a new vein in Elner. Well,
2: I did that on purpose. Yeah, but it's, it's not, not as
1: much as Elizabeth, it's true. No, Elizabeth. you would have
2: to really find something to do about Elizabeth that was just totally off the wall. It wouldn't be worth doing it. You know, it just looked like everybody else's Elizabeth. So, you so like would, Elizabeth, huh? Yeah. A bit. Uh, <laughs> Named after Elizabeth. Oh, good. ah. All right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: All right. A couple more. uh, I want to ask, what's your what? Where where are you going now? What's your next thing?
0: Um, let's see. I've got short stories going on, and uh,
1: short stories are good. You sell. If you sell one a week, you'll make five thousand dollars a year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Depends on who you sell to. That's what I do too. (laughs) Um, so working on short stories, uh, working on, the new, on a new novel, um, mostly in the research phase for that. I, I just started writing it to try and get a sense of tone. Um, but I'm probably going to write into it for a little bit and then stop and, and fiddle with the outline some more. Um, and it's... I'm hesitant to talk about it because it keeps shifting, but um, but it's basically set in... A, 1910, it uses a completely different magic system. This one is dust-based. Um, and unlike uh, Glamour and Glass, which is illusionary, this one is actually completely transformative, but only lasts as long as the dust is on the object. Um, and you can't fix the dust. Like, using a fixative on it um, stops the dust particles from interacting. So um, so some some things are more clingy than others and, and will last longer, and some things are uh, uh, go away very quickly. And um, it's about a... Um, It's another love story because I like them. Um, Although this one is not a romance so much. uh, But uh, um, this white man is at uh, University of Chattanooga, uh, University of uh, Nashville in the uh, School of Applied Arts, getting his magicking degree. And um, there's a black woman who is using magic to pass. Magic what? Magic to pass as white so that she can attend this university Um, and he meets her um, and falls in love with her and um, the novel is fraught with uh, things that can go horribly, horribly wrong so I may chicken out (laughs) Um, uh, but it's a story that won't leave me alone Um, so so I keep fiddling with it so we'll see what happens with that my agent's excited about it so
2: we'll see what what happens. Cool.
1: And are you do you plan to keep writing or are you going to give it up?
2: Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just finished a book about Richard the Lionheart's crusade. Um, I'm working on something now which is not I don't know if it's a, I don't think it's a novel. I don't it's probably a long short story and it's kind of got a it's kind of science fiction, but it's like everything else I do it's wacky. And I don't know what it will What'll happen with it at all? I just am having fun, you know. Fooling you still around. sound wacky. What? Well, it it seems it isn't. Um, I don't even want to talk about it. Okay.
1: All right. <laughs> all right. Really, literally.
2: It may never. It may <laughs> never see the light of day. It it just is yeah. a. Um, it, it's something I'm fooling with, but it's you know it's already thirty five hundred words and thirty five hundred words is nothing for me that that actually <laughs> thirty five hundred words is a lot of words <laughs> all right. but also I, I hate not having something to work on. I really feel really at, at at loose ends, and then I also have to deal with things like my kids and my grandkids and God knows they 're harder than writing a book so um. <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right so unless we have any other questions, this is's been a privilege these are um, This is what it's about. This Uh, is uh, cool. Thanks, guys.
2: Thank you, Terry. Thank you.
1: So come see us uh, next um, next week. We will or next month we'll have Amelia Beamer,
0: who's right there.
1: Who I have no, I've never heard of her, but I hear she's (laughs) written something. (laughs) Yes.
0: and Remind
3: me again of the story of his anthology, the name no Children, Children No More, and it's a charity anthology. The sales are all going to benefit an organization that he's uh, very involved in. So it's an
1: orga- its a—it's a charity for children who don't have a name. Okay. No, <laughs> 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 and it, it now, no. <laughs> no.
3: or a van, so van name. Mark Van Name, Children No More. You'll see, it's a very worthy. I would like to just to say um, thank you, Mary and Cecilia, again, for both being here. They'll be signing out in the lobby. we got some cookies and brownies out there for you as well. Right. Really thank you both. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. you, thank, part
2: you, of you. thank you for inviting us. You are a great audience. Thank you. Thank you, Yeah, was.